Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Localize is a language technology B2B software as a service company, and it's on track to redefine this category. More than 1,800 companies, including MasterCard, Lemonade, Revolut, ABN AMRO, Crypto.com, they all use Localize to manage product translations. On the 13th of May, check out their LinkedIn page and website for more information and details. That's localize.com, L-O-K-A-L-I-S-E.com. And with that, let's start the episode. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lex. Great to talk to you. Yeah, I've very much missed our conversations and I'm really excited to um, hop into the, the topic today to explore your lived experience in the industry around banking and neobanking and the differences that you've seen across the different geographies in which you've worked on building a bank. So maybe to contextualize a little bit, we start with what kinds of banks have you worked on building and where, and then we'll hop in from there. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I have also missed our regular conversations. Things have been pretty crazy lately with work and life. And I don't know, maybe we can pick that up on a totally different recorded conversation that has nothing to do with uh, with finance. But I, I guess par- part of it we'll get into today, which is all the work we've been doing building Bella here in the US consumer neobank over the past year and a half, and all the interesting adventures we've had and the, and the early success having launched, I guess, five months ago. So to answer your question, probably six, seven years ago now, in the UK, we built a bank called Alica. So commercial bank raising online retail deposits and lending money to small and medium-sized businesses. So born out of the post-financial crisis, funding gap, lack of availability of financial capital to small and medium-sized businesses, specifically in the UK, which was the market we were focused on. And our thinking around trying to address that problem coincided with work that the FCA and PRA in the UK were doing to basically increase competition in banking in the UK and encourage a small number of new fully licensed, fully authorized banks to come to market. So we worked our way through that authorization process, became a fully authorized, fully regulated bank by both the FCA and PRA, launched in 2019. So that that was a uh, an amazing experience of taking this brand new bank from you know, vision, from concept through to planning, building, hiring, and then in the end, launching. So launched in 2019 and has been operating very successfully ever since. So there's a, there's a thing to point out here that I think is just really interesting, which is that you've got the regulator in the UK, the FCA, that has a mandate to generate competition in the industry and, you know, in a sense to make it easier for new entrants to come in. And that is something 
quite different and distinct from how the OCC and the American regulators and the the various banking associations in the US think about fintechs. So I just want to kind of bookmark that, that having a a regulator that says we need more competition and then creates almost a fast lane for new entrants is something that you guys were able to use. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that came out of the financial crisis and the experience in the UK with, and we're kind of stretching my my recollection of history now, but HBOS, Northern Rock, some of the bank collapses in the UK and the resulting ecosystem with probably four banks in the UK, Barclays, Lloyds, HSBC, and RBS, and then Santander growing over the past number of years. But it's really that, you know, the big four, big five banks in the UK, which represent the lion's share of the market share. And that market concentration was even more pronounced circa 2013, 14, 15, as these changes were happening at the UK regulators. So therefore, it felt at the time to the country like there was an important need for a more diversified, less concentrated banking industry to effectively protect the economy in the event of future financial crises. So yeah, that translated through to regulation, which resulted in the creation of new banks like Monzo and Starling and Alica. Cool. And so now what happened, you've moved to the US and what is the environment like on the American side of this equation. Does it feel similar in terms of the regulatory posture or the consumer posture? What's your impression so far? And what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. So I guess to finish answering your first question to complete the context. So once we set the ship sailing at Alica in 2019 and had installed an extremely talented, extremely skilled, extremely experienced, very senior management team. I stepped back, moved to the US and connected with an old contact and now great friend, Angelo D'Alessandro, who had started a digital bank in Italy called Buddy Bank. And we found a strategic investor and launched a retail neobank called Bella, which I mentioned before. So the, the model here, which is similar to the model pursued by the likes of Chime, Varro, Early Days, Current, and effectively all the other household name neobanks in the US is to work with a regulated banking partner and some form of card processor slash core banking software provider and basically create a an interesting consumer experience on top of regulated banking infrastructure. So then I, I guess then to pick up your, your second question, what's what's the difference in terms of you know, regulatory approach and appetite and market opportunity? So in, in the UK, as you said before, there's there has definitely been meaningful push to open up competition specifically in the regulated banking space, i.e. bring bring more authorized banks to market. In the US, there has not been that push. I think the feeling would be there hasn't been a need. Certainly, there's concentration among the big banks in the US, but traditionally, there are also thousands of banks in the US, many of which are small banks, regional banks, community banks, credit unions. But there's not the over-reliance for banks owning the market that perhaps there is in the UK. So as a result, I think that plus a much more complicated regulatory environment with 50 states and federal regulators and a handful of federal regulators that have oversight over banking. This kind of single unified approach that the UK has taken to encouraging competition is something that is by its nature much more complex in the US. So the quicker route to market has been basically leveraging existing infrastructure, existing authorized banks and FIs and building on top of it. If you look at the licensing process 
in the UK, and then you look at the whatever it may be, if you were to look at some sort of licensing process, whether it's through an ILC or some Wyoming bank, or some people are like buying banks now, Radius acquired by Lending Club, when looking at the licensing and regulatory burden in the US, what's your what's your feeling about them? How would you compare them? I think we said in the past on some of these the conversations that we used to have that it would be, if not interesting, at least very useful to connect with some sort of regulatory lawyer to understand the, the real ins and outs and get a view on some of these more technical legal questions. But simplistically, the way I think about it is it depends on the type of business model that you want to run. And so the traditional bank business model is build balance sheet and optimize for net interest margin. Deposits on one side, loans on the other, interest rate differential minus cost of risk being your revenues. Or build a service that earns fee revenue as opposed to, to net interest revenue. And I think the route that fintechs have taken in the US, those that have not actively pursued a banking license or attempted to buy a bank or some sort of you know regulatory equivalent, ILC, as you mentioned, has very much been the the kind of fee-based one. And I guess corollary to the fee-based model is the interchange-based model, which you could think of as a transaction fee. So basically, consumer banking or, or business banking offerings that require balance sheet on one side and that optimize for net interest margin, which probably move you into the realm of wanting to obtain a banking license, and those that are more fee or transaction revenue-based, which don't require you to pursue a banking license. And then it you know becomes a question of where you think you can get most scale, where you think you can get most leverage from the way you've designed your model, and frankly, where, where you see the opportunity. So this kicks off a thought that I'd love to get your reaction on. There is, in my mind, a you know simple distinction you can make between money in motion and then money at rest. And this is you know, just like a stocks and flows diagram, right? Like there's the river moving and then there's it, the river goes over some sort of waterfall. There's like the height of the waterfall, which is the uh, the, the stock of it. And then the, the pace of the money, the, the pace of the river is the, the flow. And they're really different models structurally to build businesses around. And they apply to banking, but they also apply to investing and trading and so on. And I feel like in the U.S., there is this incredible, not obsession, but like all the symptoms, all the fintech symptoms are around money and motion and these like transactional companies. That's not entirely true because you've got underwriting and credit. But if you look at Robinhood and you compare Robinhood to something like a Betterment, right, where Robinhood's all about exchange and trading and how many times do you get to turn over your portfolio and you have that money in motion versus an asset manager or wealth manager where you have money at rest and you want that money to not move around. You don't want people to fuss around and do transactions. And these are very different personality profiles for these apps. They're different use cases. And if you go to the banking side, it's exactly what you've just described, which is you can build a thing that is really you're incentivized to do more and more payments and purchases if you're a company that monetizes through through flow or through transactions or interchange, right? It's You want to design things in a way that your users spend, spend, spend. And then when they run out of money, you give them a loan so they can continue spending because that's where your revenue generation is. And similarly with trading, it's the same sort of trap where you're trying to get people to transact and trade, even if it's maybe bad for them versus the money at rest version, which is just 
put your thing into this bucket, put your thing into an account or a savings account or an investment account or an asset allocation and don't touch it. And what's interesting from what you've described is that it's almost the industry structure, the fact that where you're playing, if you're playing on top of the, the regulated entities or if you're playing as the balance sheet entity, determines what your incentives are in terms of designing your business. And then that determines how you charge in your revenues, which determines your how valuable you are and what you reinvest back in the business. And I don't know, like naively, it just sounds like the American fintech layer is structurally more transactional than elsewhere. How do you think about that? Does that ring true? Is that a valid framework? I think it definitely is. I would take it one step further. I think it's not the American fintech layer, which is more transactional. I think it's the American economy or the American consumer. And it's very clear spending time in both countries, UK and US, that the amount of spending in the US is just feels like an order of magnitude higher than in the UK. And I'm sure we could find data to both prove and disprove what I'm saying, speaking more on gut feel and observation here. But whether it's actually number of transactions or at the very least dollar value versus sterling value of discretionary purchases, there's just very high, I call it velocity of money or spending turnover in the US among consumers. And I'm sure that extends to businesses too. So I think that therefore, as a result, building a transaction-based business in the US, not only do you have a population which is six times greater or whatever it is than the UK, but you also have the, the kind of multiplier effect of just the num number and size of transactions that are happening. And I think that on a, I guess, thought related to the other points you were making just then around kind of Robin Hood versus betterment. I mean, a lot of this too, it just comes down to human psychology, you know, and, and the difference between spending time on Facebook and spending time in the library. Like one is a dopamine experience. And one is kind of more of an investment in the future type experience. And we're all human beings. And I think even the most studious among us recognize that, that there's something powerful in the dopamine experience. Yeah, there are some fun things to say around generational change as well here. So there's a fantastic report from The Visual Capitalist on generational power. They've indexed the silent generation, boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z as to assets that they hold, cultural power that they hold, how much impact they can have on government through Congress and so on. And it's a rough picture, but it makes sense. You know, you accrue sort of more generational power over time. And so there's something about these digital apps that are not dominated, but are largely shaped and defined by the younger digitally native generations who have not yet accrued the net worth of the older generations. And so, of course, that's changing, but there's something about it that makes sense where the library version, the go eat your vegetables version, capital preservation, that's something that is less of a goal for the younger generations because they, they don't have as much capital to deploy. They don't have as much share. It's not yet as much a priority and it will be over time, certainly as millennials age and inherit more. And so the apps are all about how do I get more? How do I buy more? How do I transact and win the game? And you know, Coinbase and the IPO for Coinbase is another really bright example of this where most, if not all of Coinbase's meaningful revenue comes from the exchange of assets from one to the other. It's the turnover from trading. And even though they've got something like 100 billion in assets under custody, if not more, that custody is just, it's just there for the assets to trade and generate spread fees. And I don't know, there's something about that that just 
strikes me as really bizarre in the moment. It, it strikes me as very specific to where we are in the narrative, because if you rewind back 10 years, I feel like finance was talking about passive management and it was talking about the ETF revolution and you know the collapse of cost in terms of managing assets passively and safely. And we've gone all the way to the other side where it's just about more transactions, faster transactions, spreads on transactions. Yeah. No, I, I think that makes sense. I think that the dialogue talked about 10 years ago, it was much more colored by experience in the 2008 financial crisis. And it was kind of finance post financial crisis. And what do we prioritize versus today in certainly buoyed by recent bull markets, but it's kind of like finance meets social media and meets mainstream culture. And I think I think that's what we're seeing as much as anything. People talk about public and some of the other, I guess, like social trading platforms, which have come and generally gone over the past handful of years. But I think you could talk about Robinhood and Coinbase as being, in a sense, finance meets social media. Not that they have any sort of social components on their platform, but it's like the conversation happens on Reddit and the trading happens on those consumer apps. But it's still a, a combination of those two forces. So how do you think about this when it comes to Tabella and designing around the personalities and the psychographics of your potential customers, knowing some of these dynamics and being at the distribution layer in the US, how are you thinking about targeting something that is different, distinct, special? Yeah, yeah, great question. And, you know, we think so much about this. And on the one hand, there's kind of the operating model and the and the economics, which we talked a little bit about earlier on being a an experience or building it a top regulated financial infrastructure. And then on on the other side, which is even more important in the you know, the early stages of a consumer fintech or any consumer business is how do you in this overcrowded, oversaturated world cut through the noise and clearly communicate with a potential customer base? How do you get the message out? How do you stand out? How do you create a differentiated proposition, differentiated messaging? Because many, many an idea, many a company have died with fantastic products, fantastic concepts, but an inability to to really communicate with a huge audience. And so in that context, there's a lot to learn from both consumer fintechs like Robinhood, like Coinbase, and from consumer brands more generally. And from the kind of behavioral observations of you can you can talk about this the specific generations, but basically call it people that are you know younger than the age of forty five, generally speaking, and how they're interacting with the world. And then how do you build an offering, and how do you market an offering, and how do you communicate an offering that connects with people where they are on the same level of energy, on the same level of engagement that's speaking to their priorities at that point in time. So that's arguably it's more marketing, it's brand development brand positioning, but has a lot to do with the offering and how we're designing everything, because that's in a sense, the challenge much more than just creating a transaction account, which is a solved problem. Right. So whereas in the UK, part of the question was, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of the question was just like, how do you make a bank that works bottoms up if the FCA or if the country wants to have you know more banks? And in the US, 
it's an extremely crowded set of participants, both some that are very legacy, and then you've got the mega banks, and you've got the fintechs. And so figuring out how to be special and distinct and leaning into distribution is much more important. And you're also going a lot faster, right? You're, you're getting there faster. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For sure. With Alica, it was a pretty clear challenge, which was, okay, we think that if we do the right things, we can get the banking authorization. We think we can build this business in the right way. We think we can use, quote unquote, modern technology, technology that was that was modern in uh, 2016, 17, effectively cloud and APIs, whereas existing banks were using on-premise, like server-based legacy technology. Therefore, we can use less people. Therefore, we can run a much more efficient business. Therefore, we can make smaller value loans, but still be profitable. And therefore, that gives us a competitive advantage against other banks in the market. It's going to take us a while until we can start to operate on the same level playing field from a standpoint of capital requirements. But we have a path to get there because of the cost efficiency of our model. That was the challenge in the UK. Not an easy challenge, but a pretty straightforward challenge. And with Bella, because of the vision that we have to not only create a high value consumer banking offering, but also to really progress a mission and a vision around making the world a kinder, more connected, more meaningful place. We have to think much beyond, I don't know, like better savings tools or better budgeting tools or some sort of incremental product type solution attached to a checking account or a debit card and really think about building a strong message that can mobilize a huge number of people across the country to get behind and help us progress from the entry point in banking to the much broader vision that we have for the future. So we're in a moment of communities, right? Of community building it triggers a couple of ideas around, you know, first aspiration, I think has been quite successful in yes, offering Neobank as a feature, but really focusing on ESG and tapping into the way people feel about climate change and the way that people feel about quote unquote, saving the planet and, and making the world a better place. And the choice that people make about their bank ends up not being cost. And it's not about 0.25% or 0.23% interest rates. The choice ends up being much more, I am a person of this type. And in order to reaffirm my personality, I surround myself with these particular products, right? Like these products are extensions of my beliefs and therefore they become my appendages. And if I have to sacrifice two basis points on interest rates to be green and contribute to making the planet healthier, then I'm more than happy to pay that price and kind of sacrifice some stuff. And I think they've done a really nice job of that story. You also see this in, I promise not to talk about crypto, so this is as much as I'm going to do. You also see this in the crypto story where it's about this futurism, this opening up of the new world versus the old world, the empowered versus the disempowered, the privacy and self-sovereignty versus the advertising and so on. And it's very much a community-driven set of assets. And I think the, the last piece that I want to bring up and get your reaction to is influencers. And not like, I mean, real influencers, people who are engaging with the attention of people in the millions, right? So celebrities or people on TikTok or musicians or whatever. And the last like three years, especially the last year has been 
unbelievable in the number of artists and musicians and athletes and TikTok influencers and dancers that are all now fintech investors. And I guess we shouldn't be really all that surprised, given you can trace this back to nearly every decade. But you've got, you know, you've got Charlie from TikTok investing in Step, the uh, the teenage neobank, and they've continued to grow and, and kind of target that demographic really well. You, of course, have the Square Cash App story through the hip hop artists that essentially power the signups. Now with the acquisition of Tidal, that's amped up even more. So just to pause there, how do you think about influencers and social representation and just this growth lever more generally? Yeah, I, I mean, very much in line with the points that we were making before about the intersection of finance and social media, and also this challenge, which I mentioned more around getting the word that word out, building brand, the marketing and growth challenge, as opposed to the product challenge. And you know, one way that some of these companies that you've talked about have approached that is via these mega influencers. And I think, you know, that makes tons of sense. I think stepping it back, because it's easy to say someone with a million followers or 10 million followers, and they hold up the debit card, and then their followers want it, or they don't. And it's easy to be skeptical about that and say, why do you care which bank your favorite basketball player promotes what's the connection between basketball and banking. But I think the broader point is the difference between building brand and building product. And I think if you look at the biggest, most successful consumer fintechs now, they've built brands. And I think if you look at the most successful consumer companies in general, you know, from Nike to Apple to down the line, the value is in the brand as much as it's in the product, because the brand is where the human psychology really plays in. It's where the, the self-identity plays in. It's where the ego of the consumer comes in. And that becomes a totally different decision than basis points. And in fact, if you think about how we make consumer decisions in every area of our lives, apart from financial services and probably our utility providers, brand, ego, self-identity play huge roles. So I think there's a massive opportunity which is starting to come through in fintech and which can come through even stronger in the future around you know, really brand first plays in this space. And you could say that Chase has a strong brand and Wells Fargo has a strong brand. I think they've intentionally built brands to do something a bit different, which is to communicate kind of name recognition and quote unquote trust. You can put your money there and it's not it's not going to go away. I don't think they built brands in the way that Nike has built brands, that Apple has built brands, which are kind of values-based, which entail like a opt-in association by the consumer into a specific worldview or way of thinking. And I think we're seeing that more now in fintech and I think we'll continue to. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a fascinating turn. And there's a corollary that's a little funky, which is the goal for many of the companies that win a geography is to go global. And there, you know, there's a story from Revolut these days about going global. There is a story of Robinhood trying to go global. And do you think there's enough overlap between the values that people share across different geographies for that to be possible? I, I also think about and financial at one point wanting to go global and expanding to Europe before their full beat down by the Communist Party recently. You know, so we have such strong centers of different approaches to fintech, whether it's Europe, the continent, or whether it's the UK, or whether it's the US, or whether it's Brazil with New Bank, or whether it's you know China with its with its tech players, and they all want to be the global financial 
layer that really reflects certain cultural values and is the century's version of economic soft power is financial technology. Is it possible to be global on brand and on shared values? Or is there a natural limit to that based on the differences that that you've seen personally? Yes, this is a great question, probably one better fielded by some sort of social socio-historian or something. I, as the perpetual optimist, think that, you know, yes, definitely, there's global scale at, you know, strong brand-based fintech companies. The question is, is it immediate or does it take time? And potentially, does it even require that the power of some of those brands shape the expectations of users in different geographies that don't currently have them? Like super simple, almost playful analogy, which I'll offer out, you know, there's this great narrative about Nike in the very early days, having been this kind of shoe for the weirdos that jogged on the weekends, because at the time, no one did that. And then that became a movement became a brand associated with a movement in America. And I I imagine that there were other parts of the world which didn't follow the same trajectory along the same time frame that American joggers did in the whatever decade it would have been, you know, 70s, but that did over time develop similar interests. And whether that was in response to local conditions, response to the increasing global notoriety of Nike, or a combination of those things, plus the fact that Nike maybe went from building running shoes to building soccer shoes and sponsoring soccer teams, which resonated more in different geographies. Like through doing that, I think they built a global brand. And I think the same is probably true in FinTech. The idea of New Bank just opening up in every country or Revolut opening up in every country with the same value proposition that worked in the home country doesn't make any sense because the consumer pain points are different in all these countries. But is there anything preventing over the long term someone really building strong brand recognition and then over time tweaking and refining propositions to specific markets and you know, in the case of, I don't know, Robinhood or Coinbase, maybe it's driven by US usage now, but markets in other parts of the world in observing this now with you know, global participation on platforms like Reddit, perhaps could shift expectations in a way that they become more relevant to brands like that. So I think that lo- you know, longer term, it's bound to happen. It's probably not immediate. Yeah, absolutely. I think I don't think we need any other socioeconomic historians uh, other than you. I think that was a great take. You know, my my feeling around this is that as the analog nature of historically difficult to make stuff gets melted down into software, you know, it's um, information was hard to make and now it's trivial because it's just technology, healthcare, financial systems, transportation, manufacturing. A lot of the stuff that was that was so difficult to build in the analog world is becoming trivial and off the shelf and open sourced. And once that happens, you have to compete on other attributes. And so money and financial products, whereas historically they've been neutral in a sense that there's nothing about them that's really personal. You know, they reflect maybe your nation state, but they're like a functional part of your society and society just is what it is. It feels to me that money is becoming multivariate. It's becoming multidimensional, where people have choices that are these brand or personal cultural choices they make through spending. And you no longer have to be ultra high net worth in order to spend according to your beliefs. You can be a 16-year-old or, or a 22-year-old with your first bank account you know, and choose the kind bank account 
or choose the green bank account simply by by selecting an app and then funneling the assets that you care about through that brand and express it in that way. And to me, that seems like something that's only going to expand. And in the same way that we've had the sort of huge explosion and diversity of views and storytelling and narratives through the internet of media, the same is, is happening through the internet of value, which is the combination of all the various embedded finance APIs and the banking as a service companies and the new payment rails that are being built out. And that is happening on a global basis. And so I also see the expression of values as becoming global and quite radically challenging to the traditional world. So thank you so much for hopping on. Really enjoyed catching up and always learning what you're up to. Will, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Lex. This is great. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>